Like I said earlier, we're returning now to our series in Luke, looking at what it means to follow Jesus, to be in his kingdom. And I'd love it if you could keep your Bibles open on page 1051. That would help me uh, as you sort of follow along with me. And also your, um, your minty green handouts uh, might give you a steer on, on where we're going in a moment's time. But should I lead us in prayer before we make a start? Saviour of all the earth, we cannot reason why you came to die for us. Father, our prayer tonight is that we would meet with you, meet with your servant king, and that we would be even more amazed than we are already at why you would die for us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You see that the topic of our talk tonight is on gratitude. And I came across this uh, study recently, it was in 2014, um, between uh, the universities of Miami and the universities of California. They, they did a joint study on this topic of gratitude. What they did is they, they asked three distinct groups of students. It's always students, isn't it, when they do these sort of social studies. And uh, they asked these distinct groups to, to basically keep a very accurate diary of their day-to-day lives for 10 whole weeks. Everything was to be recorded in their diaries, from the, the minutiae of their days, the really mundane, tiny details, all the way through to the massive events of their lives. And each of them had to sort of, at night, write down exactly what had gone on. At one group were asked to focus on particular the things in their life which were frustrating to them, the things which were annoying them, the, 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 the details in their life which just get them down, and to focus on those things. The, the second group were asked to um, do the opposite, to focus on things which they're grateful for, to count their blessings, to be thankful for, for all the details in their life. And the third group were asked to do both. They asked to focus on the good things and also the bad things. And each of them for ten weeks would be writing down all those details. At the end of the study, ten weeks later, the researchers found some astonishing things. They discovered that grateful, the grateful people in that study, those who sort of looked upwards and outwards, those who counted their blessings, they showed higher energy levels, they slept better, they exercised more, and they noticed there was a discernible reduction in physical ailments and, and need for trips to the doctor. But it's funny enough, the reverse was true for those who were navel-gazing in that study. Those who are looking down and inwards at themselves, those who are constantly picking over what was difficult or frustrating in their day-to-day lives. The study has been repeated a number of times, and basically we've discovered there's, there's a link between gratitude and our health. What we're going to see in our passage tonight in Luke 17 is that there's a link between our gratitude and our spiritual health. I think it's true of us uh, personally, as individuals. It's also true of us as a church. So do me me a favour, just think about it for a moment. Would you say that you are a grateful person, You're, you're a thankful person? Would you say that we, St John's, are a grateful church, a a thankful church? Now we might dismiss this as not really very necessary. We might say, well, my culture, I'm British, we might say my my culture is a little bit 
this way inclined. We're, we're quite pessimistic, aren't we? Quite cynical. So some of us, who are particularly Brits, we find this quite hard. We might say, well, my personality, well, I, I'm a bit of an Eeyore. I find it very easy to look at any given situation and tell you exactly what has gone wrong and how it can be improved. Maybe that's you. Well, we're going to see tonight that, that gratitude, it, it isn't an optional extra for the nauseatingly cheery types. And you know who they are. It, this, this isn't an optional extra for them. Now we're going to see that all of us, we need to learn to tear our gaze off ourselves, off the ground, and up to Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. And that's what we're going to see tonight. You'll see from your handouts where we're going over the next few moments. Our first point refers to the ten men Jesus meets in our story who are diseased and at a distance. Follow with me uh, verse 11 on chapter 17. Have your Bibles open in front of you. It really helped me if you could follow with me on page 1051. Look down to verse 11 with me. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. In his travel south, it seems as if Jesus stumbles across something of a leper colony. And I think it's worth us taking just a moment to stop and consider the plight of these men. We could easily read on, but I don't think it would help us. So I, I think their disease, this leprosy, it would have ruined nearly every single aspect of their lives. Of course, it would have impacted them personally. If this was a classic leprosy, I believe that's called Hansen's disease. Is that right, Dave? That's right, yeah, Hansen's disease. If, if that's the case, their skin would have been covered with these weeping lesions, horrible to look at. But worse than that, that their nervous system would be in a state of shutdown, which means that they, there's, there's basically sensory loss in their extremities. They'd lose their ability to touch and to feel. So often I remember seeing on TV these people leprosy when I was a kid. And you often see that they, they lack fingers or, or lack hands, lack toes and lack feet. And they're just sort of these stumps. And you might think that's because they're diseased, basically that their fingers sort of just drop off naturally. But that's not the case. Rather, it, it's because having lost all feeling in their hands and their feet, they inevitably suffer these repeated traumas as they bang them, as they cut them, as they burn them. But without noticing, they suffer this self-harm, ruining themselves. It would have impacted them personally. It would have impacted them socially. We heard earlier from Leviticus 13 how, how those with skin diseases were to be cut off from the rest of society. We might think that's a bit harsh, but, but actually it's a loving law. It's a kind law. Because they didn't want these lepers to, to infect the rest of of the community. But just stop and think of the impact of those who were afflicted. It would have been devastating. Just think, think if that was you, the shame of having to always have your mouth covered, shouting out, unclean, unclean, wherever you went. Think about the hurt of seeing people recoil in horror as you approach with your disfigurements. Think of the pain of not being able to embrace 
your loved ones, not being able to give your children, your nieces, your nephews a hug. It would have impacted them personally. It would have impacted them socially. But less obviously and more importantly, it would have impacted them spiritually. I think perhaps the worst part of being sent outside the camp was that they had no access to the tabernacle or later the temple, which was in the right of the midst of God's people. It represented the God's dwelling place. And for the leper, they had no access. No access to God. No access to the means of sacrifice, the means of cleansing, the means of forgiveness. Though to them, God was far, far away. Access was denied. It's good for us to consider the plight of these ten lepers because... According to the rest of the Bible, they they offer us, if you like, a visual aid of what our lives are like without God. If you like, they, they offer an illustration of the effect of sin in our lives, both personally, socially, and spiritually. Now, we might hear, hear the word sin, we think, well, come on, <laughs> sin, it's, it's not that serious, is it? I mean, surely it's just a bit of fun as we spread that juicy bit of gossip around the office. Surely it's just a moment of relief as we click that website. Surely it's just a victimless crime as we sort of bend the truth on our tax return. It doesn't hurt, we say to ourselves. But then it doesn't hurt the leper when he accidentally takes a knife and drives it through his knuckle. And it doesn't hurt the leper when he leans his full weight on a red-hot stove. Sin is self-harm. We might not feel it, but we are unwittingly destroying ourselves. And the more we give ourselves into it, the more unfeeling we become. The further we go, the more our conscience is seared. Friends, our sin destroys us. It damages us, but but it also isolates us from those around us. I won't need long to persuade you of this, I know. You would have seen in your lives how envy has the power to ruin friendships. How pride has the capacity to destroy a, a, a good teamwork in your office or in your school. How lies have the power to destroy a relationship and ruin a marriage. Many of us, we would have witnessed these things firsthand. Our sin has the capacity to isolate us from those around us, from those we love the most. But ultimately, of course, sin has the ability to cut us off from God. When Luke describes here in verse 12, at the end there, how they stood at a distance. We're reminded of a story that Jesus told in just a previous chapter. You will remember it. It's a story of a rich man and Lazarus. And you remember how, how the rich man, he, he ignores God and he finds himself in hell. He's, he's at a distance from God. There's a great chasm between himself and his maker. And you remember how in desperation he cries out, have pity on me. Have pity on me. But it's too late. With that story in mind, our verses here, verses 12 and 13, 
or eerily familiar. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Well, it was too late for the rich man. But the question is, is it too late for the lepers? Is it too late for you? Is it too late for me? And wonderfully, wonderfully, the answer is no, it is not. Those who are diseased and at a distance are now cleansed and brought close to Jesus. That's our our second point tonight. So clearly that the lepers, they've heard something of this man who they see approaching on the horizon. They know his name. They call him out, Jesus. They know his power. They call him Master. Maybe, maybe rumours have come to him of what Jesus had done all the way back in chapter 5. You'll remember how Jesus meets the leper. And like that, with just a couple of words, he is cleansed. And so you can imagine that, that these lepers, hearing, hearing this story, were waving at Jesus, hailing him down, calling him to, to come near to them. But they're at a distance. He is their only hope. They know they can't repair the damage they've done to themselves. They know they can't bridge the distance created by their illness. They know they they can't make themselves clean before God. But they know that this man can. So verse 12, they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And then in verse 14, those beautiful words. And he saw them. Jesus saw them. It's quite common to hear people who have some form of disability. It's quite common to hear them say that when people look at them, all they see is their wheelchair. All they see is their their limp or, or, or or their facial disfigurement or whatever it might be. People don't see me, they say. Well, as Jesus looks at these lepers, he doesn't recoil in horror at their disfigurements. No, he has pity on them. He sees them and he has compassion. You might be here tonight thinking, nobody sees me. Nobody sees my situation. Nobody sees my pain. Well, you are quite wrong. Jesus sees you. He sees you. And rather than recoiling in horror at your sin, he has compassion. In fact, that's why he's going where he's going in verse 11. Did you spot that detail there at the top, verse 11? On his way to Jerusalem. For a number of chapters now, Luke's been alerting us to Jesus' final destination, where it is he's been heading. And if you're up for this, I'd love to, to... Uh, just give you a little bit of a paper chase. I'd love to show this to you. So just turn back with me in your Bibles to chapter 9 and verse 51. I'm turning with you. Chapter 9, verse 51. Page 1040. 9.51. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Flip over the page. Chapter 13. Verse 22, chapter 13, verse 22. 
says this, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Flip over, chapter 17, verse 11. It's our passage. Now, on his way to Jerusalem. Flip over with me, chapter 18, verse 31. We might be asking, why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he resolutely setting out for this city? We learn here, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. I hope you see now why we've called this series On the Way to the Cross. Because Jesus is determined to die for you. For you. This is how unclean sinners are cleansed. This is how those of us who are far from God, distanced from him, are brought close. Jesus does that at the cross. Just follow with me, verse 14 again in our passage. Chapter 17, verse 14. When he saw them, he said, Go. Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. In keeping with the law that we uh, heard earlier being read in Leviticus, Jesus sends them to the priests. And the priest's job was really just to rub a stamp what Jesus had done. To say, yep, you're clean now. Yes, you can be restored to your family. Yes, you can go back to the temple. Yes, you've been restored to God. Their job was just to rub a stamp what Jesus has done. Now we need to be careful here because in the past the the Roman Catholic Church have used this verse to justify their sacrament of confession. You might know that that Catholics, they often go visit a priest and they sit in a little box and uh, they'll confess their sins to the priest who in turn believes he has the, the power to absolve and forgive sin in God's name. The Catholic Church urges us to go through these human mediators in order to get to Jesus. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you tonight, but as a, a priest or a presbyter in the Church of England, I don't have that ability. I can't do that for you. So I'm sorry to disappoint you if you're here tonight hoping I can absolve you magically somehow of your sins by doing some sort of strange gesture or telling you to do some penance or something like that. No, I can't do that. It is good practice, isn't it, to confess our sins to one another. That's what we did earlier. But only Jesus... Only he has the power to cleanse. Only he has the power to absolve us of our sins and restore us to God. And it's patently obvious to the man in verse 15, isn't it? That's no surprise to him. Look at verse 15 again. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. It's wonderful, isn't it? Just a moment ago, he was far off, having to shout at Jesus in in the hope that he might notice him, that he might hear him. But now, this man is brought near. He's restored to himself. He's restored to his family. He's restored to his God. So what does he do? 
he falls down before Jesus and worships him. The man through whom salvation has come. This leper, this man, he gives us a picture of the power of Jesus to change a life. And he can change your life too. You might think, no, he can't. He, he, can't, he can't change me. He can't cleanse me. If you knew the things I've done, if you know the people whom I've hurt, if you knew what I've said in my quiet moments to God, you wouldn't think that this offers for me. And I reckon that's probably what this man thought. Just look at the end there. At the end of verse 16, we learn a crucial detail about him. He was a Samaritan. Now, to the Jews, the Samaritans were, were these despised foreigners, these religious heretics. And, and even if, imagine this guy wasn't even a leper. Imagine this guy was the perfect picture of health. Even then, he would not have the ability to get to God. He would have no access to the temple. And yet here he is, cleansed and brought near to Jesus. If there's salvation for him, there is salvation for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, this offer is for you. But what does accepting this offer look like? Well, our final point gives us the idea. Praise is the proof. Praise is the proof. Follow it again with me. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? The thing which shocks Jesus here isn't so much that it's a Samaritan who returns to worship him. No, the thing which shocks him is that the nine other lepers who were Jews did not see who Jesus was and did not return. You might remember back in chapter 7, John the Baptist, he's in prison and he's worried. He's worried that, that, that Jesus might not be who, he, who he, he suspected he was. So he sends a message to Jesus saying, look, who are you? Are, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we Jesus have been looking forward to? And you might know Jesus sends a message back to him. And the message says this, go and tell what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. In other words, it is patently obvious that I am the Messiah. Any Jew with even the smallest grasp of, the, of their scriptures would have known that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. Yet, it seems the nine lepers do not see it. Only this Samaritan returns to Jesus, praising God. The others, perhaps, didn't really feel the need to do so. So our account closes in verse 19. Then Jesus said to the Samaritan, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. 
Now, this statement might strike you as a little bit weird, a little bit odd. I mean, wasn't the Samaritan healed all the way back in verse 14, along with all the other lepers? Wasn't he made well back then? Well, it seems this, this man, it seems he received something that the others didn't. They were cleansed from their horrible affliction, their horrible disease. But this man, by returning to Jesus, it's evidence. It shows that he's also been cleansed from his sin. His return to Jesus is evidence of of a grateful, humble heart. In other words, his praise is his proof of salvation. Praise is the proof Last year on Channel 4, you might have seen there was this documentary uh, on, about following just a, a normal family. But it, it wasn't about following a, a normal family in the West or in France or in London or anything like that. They were following around for a whole year a normal family from the Maasai tribe in West Africa. So what they did, they, in each hut they sort of put these cameras on. For a whole year these, these tribesmen had to sort of wear these little microphones. There's a fascinating insight into their culture. And the lovely thing was just how similar they are to us, even though it's such a different culture from the other side of the earth. But it, I, I came across this, this wonderful, wonderful thing. In the Maasai tribe, the way they say, express saying thank you is lovely. The, the translators tell us that, that when a Maasai wants to express thanks, what do they do? Is they, they bow down to the ground and they put their forehead to the dirt and they say, my head is in the dust. That's their way of saying thank you. My head is in the dust. And apparently when another African tribe, the way they express thanks is they sit for a very long time outside the hut of the person who's done them the favour. And uh, literally they say, I sit on the ground before you. I sit on the ground before you. I think those African, that that, that culture, they've understood what gratitude is. At its core, thanksgiving is an act of humility. Here is this Samaritan leper. What does he do when he meets Jesus? He throws himself down to the ground. His head is in the dirt. He sits on the ground before him. And his sincere gratitude, this profound humility, that's, that's not what saves him, but it's, it's the proof, if you like, the evidence of a saved heart. So what does Jesus do? He says to him, rise, get up and go. Your faith in me has made you well. I'm nearly done. Before I close, I'd like to address perhaps two different groups of people who might be here tonight. The people who might resonate with this Samaritan, the one, and then those of us who might resonate with the nine, the others. It might be you're here tonight and you look at this Samaritan outside and you think, that's me. I'm a broken mess. I've hurt myself. I've hurt others. And I've hurt my creator and my redeemer. 